Hello and welcome to the Squiggly Animation Podcast. In this episode, we look back at the classic animated Beatles feature, Yellow Submarine, 50 years on. And here we are once again, Squiggly Podcast, with me, Ben Mitchell. Yes, I am he, as you are he, as you are me, and we are all together with Steve, of course. Goo-goo-ka-choo. How are you, Steve? Uh, I'm very well, thank you very much. He said, lying through his teeth. There's another one of these podcasts where one of us is dying of a cold. Um, but, you know, we, we keep making them, you know, so the paracetamol must be working. We're the generation that still knew something about work ethic. Yeah, absolutely. Let's just crack on with it, shall we? Keep coughing up blood and just get on with podcasting. Nothing will stop us. There are kids today who, if they were coughing up blood and generally hemorrhaging all over the place, they would take a day off work or school. <sighs> Wasn't like it was in the olden days, of course. Why, one could cast our minds back to 50 years ago, <laughs> nearly the, to the day. Well, yeah. Am I sensing a theme in this podcast? You're trying to veer away from my illness towards a more jollier theme, aren't you, Ben? It's rare that I kind of uh, attempt to make the episode more jolly. <laughs> in this case, there's a nice sort of uh, little uh, anniversary of something I think you and I are sort of mutually fond of. Mm. The animated feature film about the Beatles going on their uh, hallucinogenic psychotropic adventure in the Yellow Submarine. This is one of those films... And we'll get to it, I think, in greater detail uh, a little bit later on. This was one of these films that kind of really introduced me as a as a kid to... Mushrooms. Yeah, basically. <laughs> Just like a, a whole other world of what animated films could be. And I think that a lot of people you know, who've seen the film would understand what I'm talking about. It's not very typical of the types of films that were coming out at the time. Quite sort of consistent with the culture that was growing... Mm. This, I guess, would have been 1967, 1968. Um, he said, working out how to minus 50 from 2018. Jesus Christ. <laughs> they got it on the second attempt. you got to give me that. Yeah, yeah, well done. In the meantime, how's everything been going? Do you want some news, Ben? Uh, is there news? Yeah, very sad news. Peter Furman passed away. Oh, the sad news. Yeah. Mm. Oliver Postgate had passed on, of course, previously. Mm-hmm. Um, we have had Peter Furman on, I believe. Yeah, a couple of years ago, 2016, we had uh, Neil Whitman uh, interview him. I think it was at Anima, uh, the mm. An- Anima Fest um, in Canterbury. Uh, and he just seemed, in that interview, as you know, one of the nicest chaps around. If you look at Twitter, you look at the outpouring of love and uh, for, for his work, that's, that's doubled over. You know, people are actually saying about how nice he was, what a nice guy he was. Um, and obviously he was working right the way through, 89 years old, and still working on the uh, the new clangers, um, mm. and still doing, uh, you know, festivals and uh, doing talks about his work and stuff like that. It's a tremendous loss because I don't think enough people, as Neil said in his in his uh, in his MA uh, dissertation, um, not enough people talk about small films, the work of small films, and, and what an, a tremendous influence it actually had on what is now British children's television animation. And, you know, we have to look back to what those guys did, how they changed television, for, for the better, really. Mm. Just the writing 
as well. On top of mm. everything, they were just so lovingly written. They didn't. They weren't written like preschool shows tend to be. Um, having sort of come away from a couple of weeks with uh, my four-year-old niece and seeing the kind of stuff that she just like consumes um, mm. on a daily basis, like just what a huge difference in quality it is in terms of how they're treating the audience. Yes, it's a respect thing. But you get a lot of shows now that it's just like, okay, we're loud and we're colorful, and maybe we're going to rap at some point. Yeah. Um, you know, and it's, it's odious. Whereas, you know, these were shows that, you know, it was at, at times certainly could be loud and could be adventurous and feisty, but also appreciated the value of taking things down a notch and telling a story at a certain leisurely pace. I mean, also, it's, it's you know, the influence on you know, animation that came since. I'm sure a big chunk of what Ardman put out mm. had this kind of stuff in the back of their minds. They were learning it as they went along as well, as as were mm. Ardman, as were anyone around back back then. Uh, and you look at the cameras that they used, and they're using Meccano, and they're using really this sort of handmade, down-to-earth, crafted uh, aesthetic. I mean, look at the clangers, they're knitted. And yeah. Not only are they knitted, they're knitted by Peter Furman's wife. Emily is his daughter. The shop window is his house shop window. This is all very kind of almost like independent filmmaking. Yeah. It's all there. It's all kitchen tabletop. It's it's absolutely wonderful. And the stories that Oliver Postgate wrote, as you said, they don't talk down to the audience. They're really kind of they're on their level. They're films for for anyone, and they will stand the test of time. You could probably show episodes of The Clangers or Bagpuss to your niece, as I could show them to my uh, niece and nephew, and they'd love it. They'd absolutely love it. Yeah. Because there's, there's, a, there's a timeless charm to them. It's that sort of real-world look to it. Hmm. You know, they look like toys that are alive. <clears throat> Kids get a big kick out of that on a sort of visual tactility level. Hmm. Oh, sad business. But clearly, like I say, you know, it's not work that will be forgotten anytime soon. No. And, uh, you know, the newer clangers do a really good job, from what I've seen, of maintaining that tradition. Like you say, he was involved, as was, I believe, um, Daniel Postgate, Oliver Postgate's son. So there was, you know, sets of eyes on it that keep it consistent, I guess, with that sort of original vision. It's a nice thing to see, you know, that sort of respect. Yeah. People could have knocked out a CG clangers oh, pretty easily. Yes. Uh, I'm glad they didn't do that. Uh, as am I. Incidentally, I, I, this was probably about a month or so ago, or a month and a half, we uh, interviewed the current director of The Clang, as a woman called Joanne Chalkley. Hmm. She had some nice insights into how they do things over there. So if you want to listen back, uh, it's episode 60, uh, Peter Furman and Daniel Postgate. Well, on the, uh, on the subject of animation history... 60s animation? Yeah. Yes, uh, coming up to its 50th anniversary uh, this, I believe, Sunday. Certainly uh, within the next few days will be the 50th anniversary of when The Yellow Submarine was released. And, uh, God, the time just flew by, didn't it? <laughs> I, <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, it's uh, it's sort of crazy. I mean, it's part of me is like, wow, it's been 50 years. And another part's like, it's only been 50 years? Because <laughs> it was already an old film before I was born. Yeah. As I think I mentioned before, like it, it, it was a film that when I watched it as a kid and didn't really appreciate it 
I think I was maybe about 10 when I we rented it from the video store in Moran Heights. And I was just like, because we couldn't really find it in England to rent, I think, until it was re-released or it was just, it was hard to come by. Mm. So we, I remember watching it in Canada and just being baffled by it. You know, it was probably not that long after that it got re-released. I probably would have been about 15, 16. And I enjoyed it a lot more then. In the interim, I became a big Beatles fan. My father basically, because he didn't have anywhere else to put them, gave me all his records. And that was kind of a a nice way to get into the Beatles, because it was, you know, original pressings of Beatles albums he'd bought. Knowing some of the songs from the film, and also, like, we do, like, school recitals where... (laughs) Now, this was actually a pretty grim introduction to the Beatles. We'd have houses in our primary school mm. like each sort of group of boys had us uh, at each house and we would all be assigned a song to do a recital at some like end of term thing and so one semester it was beatles songs so just a bunch of like british schoolboys, monotone singing like beatles songs while mrs bannister played limply on the piano yeah yeah <laughs> michelle my bell <laughs> i think <laughs> I think we thought Michelle was his bell, <laughs> like a good luck charm or did something. You not, did you not used to sing uh, Yellow Submarine? Uh, Yellow Submarine was one of them. Yeah. That was like the fun one. But did you sing Tubba Margarine instead of Yellow Submarine and think you were really funny? Oh, the, the bad kids did. Yeah, well. Yeah, we wouldn't we wouldn't fall in with that crowd. That's me. Pops his <laughs> collar, combs his hair back. So then actually hearing them like with the proper arrangements was a kind of a revelation. Like, oh, wow, this is actually really musically interesting. Mm. And like not knowing that, you know, Eleanor Rigby was actually the, the instrumentation was like a string quartet. And then you, you sort of, the rest of the, the album's like a guitar band. And then they sort of go into this very classical piece of music. Like, this is pretty like, seems I'm sure very quaint now, but... You know, given that a few records ago they were doing that mop top, she loves you, yeah, 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 shit. Which I'll admit I never really cared for a huge bunch. Mm. Like, I'm I'm all in from Revolver. Yeah, Revolver, really, or, 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 or Rubber Soul. Um, yeah, Rubber Soul, yeah. probably, whichever came first. Oh, no, Rubber Soul came first, and then and then Revolver was the um, the one where they were like, right, let's take all the drugs. <laughs> yeah, and then more with each record, exponentially. <laughs> Until it's just seven minutes of a bingo call and nightmare sounds. <laughs> and yeah, I mean, it was great. I mean, I, as a kid, I, I enjoyed music that kind of went to weird different places. You wouldn't get a lot of that in on top of the pops or the Saturday morning chart show. Mm. So I'd kind of have to like hunt out weirder, more obscure bands, um, usually from soundtracks. That usually helped. You know, you'd find like a really weird song and you'd want to hear more from that band. But then, you know, a few years later and I suddenly had all these Beatles albums and being like, oh, well, no, this shit was actually all being done decades before these combinations of music styles and genres in a way that could have quite, you know, seriously alienated their audience. Like, there was a big risk factor. Mm. Certainly, I think they lost the audience that was the insane, screeching young females chasing them down the streets in um, A Hard Day's Night. But it, it then got replaced by possibly some of the same women, but certainly a lot of dudes as well who were just stoned off their tits yeah. and uh, enjoying the little journeys each record would take them on. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that, that's, that, that's the thing about the Beatles themselves, isn't it? Is that there's that evolution. And you see that evolution in the way that their work was um, consumed, for want of a better word, because 
this wasn't the first time that the Beatles were animated. There was the TVC, the same company that made Yellow Submarine, actually did uh, a TV series of the Beatles. And it was very, um, of its time, Hanna-Barbera sort of um, yeah, really scrappy, crappy animation. And the Beatles hated it. They absolutely hated it mm. because it was just a, a, you know, they would go off on nonsensical adventures and then the crowbar in a song. And that was it, basically. It was yeah. just basically music video, early music videos. And then uh, when uh, George Dunning uh, started making Yellow Submarine and got Heinz Edelman on board, that's where it changed. That's where um, there's a big shift in the, the the kind of things that the Beatles were up to and the kind of things that, well, the 60s were up to because it's around the time of... Um, before Apple Corps, but the Beatles were getting a little bit more into blowing people's minds and all that kind of typical 60s stuff. But if you ever see any of the work of um, Heinz uh, Edelman, it's unmistakable, and it is the 60s on paper. It's absolutely incredible. And so mm. the Beatles saw that um, when the film was halfway done, and that fired them up. They were like, oh, this is this is a little something more than just a cartoon this is something we want to be involved with. And that's why they filmed the um, the bit at the end of the film. Spoilers, there's a bit at the end of the film. Uh, and they also contributed a couple of songs as well. So I think Hey Bulldog was written specifically uh, for the film because the film was originally going to be like compilations and, you know, because all you need is love had already been uh, released at that point. But yeah, it's it, what a film. And what a landmark in mm. British animation history as well because, you know, there'd not been many... British animated features up until that point so you know John Coates and the, the other producers were really kind of seeing where it'd go really uh, it's quite yeah. a rocky journey but they got there I mean I just think it's a, a tremendous piece of work it's it's how I still some of the songs that I listen to now I sort of picture the sequences in the films mm. which were I mean before like the days of like MTV and the need to create music videos like, the Beatles were doing that. They kind of invented that in a way, like because they would have talk show appearances that they couldn't physically make it to. Yeah. So they would film themselves, like, f***ing around in a garden yeah, that was, with the music uh, playing. Rain, wasn't it? Was that the first one? Yeah, yeah. Rain and... Um, oh, I can't remember the other one. But uh, 50%'s not bad, is it? I mean, it's certainly the, the thing that is consistent with all the Beatles films. Certainly, they're not consistent in terms of quality. But they would all have these music segments in them that kind of hold together as music videos. Yeah. Or a sort of early iteration of what music videos would come to be. So you'd have stuff that was kind of straightforward, like in A Hard Day's Night, it would be like they're playing the song because they're actually playing it on a talk show in the story. Mm. Or <laughs> then in Magical Mystery Tour, which is a brilliant album, but I don't like the film at all no but the you know those sequences definitely indulge a degree of psychedelia doesn't quite land of course with the medium of animation and the yellow submarine then it all takes it all comes together perfectly yeah and you know you get something that is a much more i think representative experience of like you know transcending uh, the senses and you know how you interpret music when maybe your you know mind has been dulled or uh, enhanced by whatever you've sniffed or licked or smoked that day. You don't get that quite as much when it's just a guy f 
f***ing around in a walrus costume. <laughs> Not quite. But, you know, those wonderful GPO-esque rotoscopy sequences like, you know, Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds or the Eleanor Rigby sequence, that sort of mixed approach to how the animation was put together. The uh, freaky bit with the hole, <laughs> all the holes. Beautiful. Yeah. There's a bit in, uh, you know, the whole Paul is dead rumour. Yeah. You've heard that. Well, in, in part of it, obviously we know with animation you can use more than one one frame and you can, there's a bit where Paul's head goes in one hole and pops out of another one. But for one frame, there's two Pauls. And the Paul is dead people have pointed at that and gone, there it is. <laughs> there's the proof. There it is. There's two of him, just like how there was two of him. So, yeah. Have you ever read um, John Coates' book, the, uh, the 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 producer? It's a no. fantastic book, and it's the guy who also produced The Snowman um, and a whole heap of other stuff. Really fantastic, uh, well-appreciated uh, guy in the animation industry uh, who, uh, unfortunately, he died when we were just really getting started on Squiggly. And he's somebody that I would really have loved to have interviewed, but his book really kind of covers the bases. And he set up TVC uh, with George Dunning um, uh, back in the day, I believe. But uh, there was a certain point in the film, and I, I think uh, I'm right in thinking that the guys that you've uh, collected together for this interview, Ben, are, are among these people. But uh, where they had to complete the film, and they just got a load of students in. Yeah, from the art school to sort it out, and apparently it was chaos. <laughs> so yeah. I'm looking forward to hearing from uh, from those guys. Yeah, alas, uh, a lot of the people involved in the film have passed on. George Dunning died a long time ago. Robert Balser, I think, has died quite recently. The art director, they got, they're all kind of you know the the sort of major players in putting this film together. You know, it's a 50 year old film. They were already very sort of established. Yeah, I think Jack Stokes also died quite recently. So anyway, it's it's a tricky thing, I think, to kind of amass, you know, a, a, a retrospective look back from, you know, the major people involved. But the younger people, like you say, they're still kicking around. One of them was Paul Dreesen, who we uh, yeah uh, had on the podcast a few years ago. And he talked a little bit then about working on the Yellow Submarine. That was one of the sort of first things he'd done. Um, certainly one of the earlier projects um, hasn't really worked out time-wise to kind of talk to him this episode as far as uh, uh, elaborating on that but we do have a couple of people who were there and uh, it's an interesting thing I mean it's you know it's memory so uh, I've done a little bit of like sort of name checking and cross-referencing and maybe there are some things that I'm, I'm not sure line up <laughs> so let's just take it with that <laughs> grain of salt in mind uh, one of them was my own father, who worked in the cell painting side of things. Uh, he was not an animator. He didn't really do animation before or since. The whole time I've been alive, he was a painting conservationist. But he had done all sorts of things. He taught. He was a bit like the, the dad in Big Fish. Like, he has all these, like, adventures that you think are bullshit until, like, someone comes along and corroborates them. And you're like, oh, shit, what am I doing with my life? <laughs> he got the job for a slightly different connections. He kind of came in just before the big wave of students came in, but he was there certainly to witness that sort of influx. And as he says, John Coates said it was pretty chaotic yeah. by all accounts. So yeah, uh, I guess we can kick things off with that. Here's a little chat with my father, Lynn Mitchell, remembering his time working on the yellow submarine. Well, it was a, 
young painter. I had taught for a couple of years in Australia, and when I came home, I didn't want to teach again at all. Mm. What I wanted to do, like a lot of people in my position, was to actually buy daylight. And to do that it meant working part-time or working at nights. So I had a whole bunch of jobs that I did over over the years, the first few years, as long as I, I bought the time to pay the rent, buy the food and, and daylight so I could paint. In 62, 63 or 4, I met some people, and through them I met some people. Some of them were animators. One couple, or two blokes, ran a small photo animation company, you know, bouncing birds' IPs, mm. that sort of thing. And they did all sorts of odds and sods. One of them was a designer, and the other was a, uh, a cameraman, I think. And they became great friends, uh, and I would work with them from time to time, helping write scripts, uh, do production work and stuff like that. But it was always part-time work, huge fun, lovely people. One of them used to supplement his income by being a stagehand, and he put me onto that, and I did that for years. And the advantage of being a stagehand was that you worked eight sessions a week, six of which were at night, and two, two matinees. And, you know, if you were really pushed, you could earn another 55p by doing an extra show. That was the, the rate per show, it was 55p. And even in those days, that was crap money. And I also had started at about the same time to do restoration work on antique maps. And again, that had the advantage that I could do that when I'd finished painting. I could do it in the same room as my painting studio. And I'd had a corner in which I did, you know, colouring old maps and repairing them and things like that. And that eventually grew into the conservation work, you know, when I had my own business doing that. But to start with, it was part-time, pin money almost, but combining all these little funny bits and pieces of work gave me enough to a living. My then girlfriend, uh, who was a sculptor, did similar jobs. I mean, she ran, she was the manager, went to work for, and then became the manager of a greasy spoon cafe in Smithfield Market. And again, you see, she bought time. That was the, the whole point. She did all sorts of, of jobs, a lot more in the art world than I did. So uh, I had all, all these people. I met quite a few uh, through these the photo animation people. I met other animators, people I got to know quite well, became friendly with. So uh, along comes the Yellow Submarine. I can't remember when it started because I wasn't involved in the early stages. But I know almost everybody that I knew that were in any way involved in animation were hired, mm. went to work. Um, one of the, uh, the, the the bloke that was doing camera work was working on cameras. I think he was doing rostrum work. The, the designer bloke was uh, one of the main background artists, a woman who was a, a, a well-known and well-established animator. She went to work on it. Through her, I met another wonderful animator. Again, she was Australian, so was this other girl. And it grew like Topsy. It was just more and more as they began to do the work. I mean, I think it just developed like Topsy. Mm. Needed more and more people, more and more bodies. My girlfriend, Sue, went to work full-time there. She was doing trace and paint 
and, and she worked on it for a long time. I don't remember how long now, because we're talking 50 years, more than 50 years ago. I heard a lot about it because people I knew, I'd go and have a drink with, with people and after they, they'd come out of working on the Hill of Submarine, we'd go and have a drink. But I wasn't involved until um, I was asked if I could do some part-time work because I was so far behind. Mm-hmm. And um, they were doing weekend and night work at that stage. They had, they had weekend shifts. And I went on a weekend shift and worked with my girlfriend, obviously enough. And I did, all I did was paint. The place was, I mean, by then I think it had, it, I know that the, that the uh, production was done in a modern office block on the east side of Soho Square. And I think that they had two floors, quite large floors of uh, office space. And they were desperate. They were falling further and further behind, I think, because, you know, the sheer weight of the, 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 the amount of quantitative work that had to be done. And as you know, uh, it's a slow process. It's a slow process of using computers. It certainly was a much slower process when you were doing it, hand colouring. And they were bringing in people from art schools. Basically, uh, it was said, if, if, you, if you knew how to point a brush at both ends, you had a job. And by that I mean um, if you could pick up a, a Kalinsky sable brush and point it, putting it in your mouth and making a nice precise point with your with your mouth and tongue, and you knew how to take a, a Stanley knife and sharpen the other end into a, a needle, razor-sharp needle point, which you needed, of course, to scrape the paint off if you went, went over the lines because you were... And the process was tricky initially, but anyone that could that was halfway not stupid could manage to because you had to learn to float paint you, you couldn't right. the big problem for most people was learning how to float paint onto a cell because obviously you couldn't have brush strokes could you describe a bit about what that was like because a lot of people will never have worked with cells all right cells are sheets of what 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 is the material like don't know. acetate i guess uh, yeah acetate thick plaster thick clear plastic the, the, I mean, I'm sure everyone knows that the animation process is done in pencil on, on paper and then it's transferred eventually onto cells. Mm-hmm. Um, I think using um, Indian ink, I suspect, uh, single line drawings with rotaring pens, I imagine most, most people use. And then uh, they were painted, if I remember correctly, from the back. And the paint was applied with a variety of brushes, but the, the trick was... Of course, this acetate sheet is um, incredibly smooth. There's no, there's no surface texture to hold the paint, mm-hmm. and you need to have the paint. Um, so you photograph the paint from the front, but it needs to be a completely smooth surface, and that smooth uh, image has to be constant. Obviously, mm-hmm. as the colours have to be constant, constant, the style has to be constant, the colour has to be constant, the technique has to be constant. And the main one with painting was floating. You couldn't paint a cell the same way you'd paint a wall. It had to be f- the paint had to be puddled, and then moved around right. to the uh, to the drawn dimensions as defined by the black line. Yeah. I, I remember telling you that one of the the sides because on the weekends uh, most of the staff I mean were 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 on weekends and it was the weekend staff that were in there. So a lot of the offices were empty, and um, 
just looking, I mean, wandering around the building. And I still remember going into the storage areas and seeing the paints. Unbelievable. <laughs> it was like heaven for anyone that likes colours because there were just hundreds, maybe thousands of bottles of wonderful colours just sitting there. All bought in, in job lots from one particular manufacturer, I think in the States, because obviously you had to order in enough paint of exactly the same colour uh, and be, be reasonably certain that the manufacturer would produce the next lot in exactly the same colour, like Hughes and Kramer. Um, I, I don't know why that, that memory stayed with me. It was just a fantastic sight to see these mm. Dexian racks with shelves and then just pff, a bazillion colours of uh, uh, bottles of vibrant colours just sitting there. The work was very tedious because once you knew how to do it, it wasn't particularly challenging. The, the, the level I'm talking about, we are, we're talking at the bottom end of the food chain here. There is nothing, there's nowhere lower than doing <laughs> being a painter. And all the people I worked with in the studio I worked in or the office room or something, I mean, there were probably 10 people, I don't know. Um, Nice people. We all got on very well. We had a great deal of fun. But the work was done. I don't remember anyone skiving off and fiddling around and not doing the work. Mm. I think perhaps because we were weekenders, uh, we were more or less self-regulating as opposed to... It might not have been so good in during the week when you were... I mean, I don't know how they structured it with department heads or... You know, heads of a particular office. You know, if you've got an unpleasant person, maybe life was unpleasant. But I don't remember any of that at all. And the general atmosphere was very friendly, very amiable. I, I remember it with a great deal of affection. Yeah. Mm. I remember one couple that came from an art school somewhere south of London. They were a couple, but they were, I think, probably final year students. And they made a point every. They only they worked on Sundays, and they made a point. There was a bakery near where they lived and they went every Sunday morning on the way into work and they bought brandy snaps mm. which were filled with cream mm. and they would arrive at work with this huge bag full of brandy snaps full of cream which was very welcomed. <laughs> God knows why I remember that. Now of course at the same time as all this I'm doing this job and I had no part in, in the production of it uh, in the design, I knew nothing via the job about any of the problems or any of the issues that they had. But, of course, I still had the, my friendships with these people who were involved in full-time. Mm. So I heard about things from them. But I'm not really prepared to discuss some of the issues there because they involve friends. And yeah. I mean, there were a few incidents which... I remember one which I've told you about, which was a very sad one which was there was a, a, an odd job man, a sort of um, a gopher mm. that worked for the company and and, um, and he used to have to take the cells over to the, I imagine, to the, wherever, the, I, I don't remember how much of the camera work was done on that site. Mm. Certainly some of it was taken off site. So there were, maybe all of it was, I don't know. Uh, I imagine to, to rostrum cameras somewhere or other studios and I remember this poor chap one win in the winter of, of that year 
staggering along with, with um, a huge pile of boxes in his arms full of cells, mm. slipping on the snow and the whole lot hitting the ground and boxes bursting open and God knows how many <laughs> hundreds of cells, bits of tissue paper going everywhere. Of course, you know, each, each cell, the tissue paper separating, uh, separating them. And they slide, a magic acetate, lovely slippy acetate sheets on top of acetate sheets with tissue paper in between. And it was like a sort of gigantic explosion of cells. Would they have been photographed at this point? I don't know. I think they were on their way. <laughs> but I'm, I'm not sure whether they, hopefully, I mean, it would be much less of a problem if they were coming back in real life. I hope they were coming back. My Maybe we're just thinking of a better story if they were going somewhere. <laughs> but the clean-up work would have been astonishingly <laughs> complicated and difficult. This is the thing about like being an animator, and I think people will probably like feel the same way. This film came out 50 years ago. Like I know it's been done. It's been finished my entire life, you know, nearly two times over. Uh, that story is still kind of like stressful. You know? <laughs> I can well imagine. I mean, uh, no one laughed. No one laughed at the story mm-hmm. um, at the time, uh, and, and people, most people, can be pretty cruel from time to time. And the idea of somebody dumping that is hysterically funny. Except no one. I don't remember people laughing. They're all poor bugger, mm-hmm. you know? uh, and also poor buggers for those that have got a. Sort it all out afterwards, um, yeah. but you know, you, I think I just imagine the distress of this poor guy, who uh, <laughs> could see them slithering, slithering away from him. The other things I remember about, I mean, there are two other things. One thing just occurred to me when it, it all finished, and um, people went back to normal life, and people like my girlfriend had to find jobs. At some point after the film was finished and released. I, and I have no idea why I was asked, presumably somebody's, you know, were desperate to find people, um, were called in to, to do uh, an additional sequence, um, segment. And they had, they've got offices also in Soho Square, and quite a, I don't know, there weren't that many of us, but we had to do this, whatever it would have been, two minute, 33 minute section, which was the seconds of Hey Bulldog. Mm-hmm. We were told, or my memory says that we were told, that, that it was being released in France and they'd made the decision to include this, add this song into the f- film. Mm. For some reason, the France and the song were linked, you know, right. but I know nothing more about it. And presumably it was quite a popular 45 over there. One imagines, yeah. I don't know. Because I don't think it was ever on an, any other album. No, you see, I've never. I sorry to interrupt you, but that that you suddenly made a sort of memory half emerge. That I think was the first time I ever heard it. Right. Was when I was working on it. I don't think it was on. I think I only ever heard it on record later on in. You know, they they issued it as a B side or something to a to a forty five or something like that. But it don't. It was never part of the original sequence that I'm aware of. I think it may it may actually have been written and only ever produced for the film, and then just just put went into the into the pile, as it were. Yeah, quite a jolly song. Yeah, very up tempo and yeah. Sort of. And I think I don't remember because I haven't seen the film for forty years. 
I think we used Cerebus as the dog. That would make sense, yeah. Sort of design. The character of the design, yeah, was was a, a, a multi-headed, five-headed, whatever dog, bulldoggies, I think. But hey, 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 bulldog, yeah. yeah. Um, I, and I don't know who designed it. I don't think it was particularly noteworthy in terms of design. I mean, it wasn't. I don't think it was. Was it Erdelman or Eidelman, the original designer? And it certainly wasn't. It didn't fall in the category of, of people like whoever did Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds and so on, which is the most notable, going back to what I said right at the beginning you know, about how individual animators and people were given, almost given carte blanche to, to do a song. Um, as I say, my friend did the opening section of the film, which was the, I think, wonderful section of the, um, the rooftops in Liverpool. The mm -hmm. rising sun, the rooftops, and then, then the camera tracks pans up, and the, you see the chimneys, and then it, the great blast of smoke from the chimneys to the sound of um, steamships, yeah. um, horns, foghorns, and it tracks down. And you've got all the lonely people yeah. through terraced streets. Of, Did she then do the Eleanor Rigby? Sequence? Yeah, well, that's her sequence. Uh -huh. The whole sequence. That's such a because that's such a sort of stand out design wise it's such a stand yeah out absolutely a well i mean we're talking about the same thing we're talking this that whole original sequence as far as i mean was hers mm. up until and including the the bloke with the motorcycle helmet who's crying mm. he's got a tear coming out of his eye yeah. um it's like the people sort of photographs i think of people in windows yes it's, it's a mont photo montage the whole thing is a photo montage if that's the right phrase but mm. um, um and there was like the issue with the sun, was that like... Well, that was just a technical issue, it was driving her crazy, I can remember her ranting and raving about how she, she couldn't get the damn thing to, it wouldn't photograph correctly or something, or that was, what's the word, it was um, haloing effect, right. on a, and they, they couldn't seem to sort that out. Sort of I think in the end, looking at that that clip, um, which may, of course, may have a lot to do with um, the fact that it's a small screen. It looks pretty good. Yeah, it looks brilliant. Yeah. In terms of the, the general attitude of who and what the Beatles were, I mean, were people sort of excited that it was a Beatles thing? Or That's a good question. Were... You're talking maybe the wrong audience, oh. you see. No, was, I liked them very much. I thought they were fantastic. But I'm there at the same age. They're the same age as me. Yeah. And... Um, I mean, in other words, the, the 22, 23-year-old Beatles um, were playing to a 22, 23-year-old me, mm -hmm. not a 12-year-old. Right. Yeah. Um, and I just thought their music was exhilarating and fresh and huge fun. Yeah. And, very, and some of it very beautiful. And if you consider the sort of music that we had to listen to, mm -hmm. well, it's pretty hard yeah. not to be impressed. They had a range, and uh, they were funny, they were sensitive, they were very rhythmic. There was good music around, but we didn't get to hear it. Mm. Benny King and, and, and Sam King, Sam Cooke. But we, it was not performed for mainstream mm. audiences. Um, and it was, I think it was racial, mm. overwhelmingly racial. Uh, and it was only in the late 50s, and if you were... Um, 
I mean, the big thing in those days was traditional jazz because it was exciting compared with the other stuff. But when, when finally in the, in the late 50s and 60s we began to hear blues music and, and, and what became rock and roll was just incredibly exciting. Now you had the Beatles came and they were a big, they were bombshell. And then the Stones came and they too were another bombshell. And I loved it too, it was great. But the Beatles were were very expressive, very, um, they were fascinating and they were huge. Because they, they, they developed so quickly, they, they were changeable. We now know it was George Martin probably that played such an enormous influence on them. But going back to the original question, I wasn't, uh, I never wet myself at the excitement of a Beatles song. I was too old for that. I had other interests. I mean, I liked chamber music more than I liked pop music. But it, uh, I still loved uh, Beatles films. I went to see the films and enjoyed the music. I bought all the records, as you know, because you, you got, yeah. I gave you most of them. Uh, when they came out, I bought them, loved them. Some tracks I didn't like, but over one majority I thought were great. And they were this uh, extraordinary film, and it went on for years. But I think one of the thing was that things were so that, that they were <clears throat> they developed. Yeah. As time passed, they developed. So going back to your question, whether the film sixty, what did you say, sixty-seven, sixty-eight that came out, the yeah, film, man, yeah. it's got to be two years before that that it was being mooted, I suppose. I don't remember any great excitement. I think people were probably interested in it. Yeah. Well, that sounds fun. I mean, an animated film. But they had a, a, already a track record of films yeah. by then. And they were Hard Day's Night, which was black and white, and a sort of a... Um, fast, I mean, I think a very well done mixture of a, a sort of, what have you called, a pseudo-documentary linked mm -hmm. in with, with fantasy. Um, and then you had others which were, were fantasies, help, and so on and so forth. By the time that uh, Yellow Submarine was making, we'd gone into hippie phase and Love and Peace Man, and then there was the All You Need Is Love. I can't remember when that happened. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. The film, the, the, the television broadcast, it went around the world. It was one of the first truly international Live, it was live broadcast. It was broadcast all over the world. That mm. I still remember the the, the um, what do you call them? Those woolly coats, the Afghan woolen coats, and <laughs> hey man, and the peace signs. Fair enough, but that was very much at the time. Everyone was dressed like that. Yeah. Pre, I think probably just pre Yoko Ono tragedy, according to the fans. You know, mm. I mean, I, I don't remember the chronology, uh, uh, which came first, but. I mean, it's all a mishmash of, of that yeah. period of time. And, of course, the film took quite a long time to, to make, so things would have changed during that period, no doubt. Yeah. I got to, I, Sorry, I've just remembered two little stories. The actor that played Paul McCartney in The Yellow Submarine, his name was Jeffrey, and I've forgotten the second name. Lo and behold, I got to know him because I went to work on at the Adelphi Theatre as a stagehand, I was doing that all through the spirit. Uh, and and a, th uh, a show called, a musical called Maggie May, which was a Lionel Bart musical. Georgia Brown played the lead. And it was set in Liverpool. Maggie May was a famous Liverpudlian character. 
and they had in it a rock band. It was made up of actors who could play music, and and they were the sort of uh, symbolic rock band from Liverpool, and they they figure in the in the play, mm. and one of them was Jeffrey. And a nicer bloke you would never meet. You could never find. He was absolutely lovely, and he went on. Um, he was in a, a lot of uh, television series. His most notable was was uh, Mrs. Bouquet's brother-in-law. That's right. He was a lovely. You also knew. Hmm? I remember. You knew the woman from that. Sort of. Well, I knew Mrs. The, uh, what's her name because a friend Sister. from here, from a friend of mine, that ran the was president of the music. Um, Cheltenham Arts, Peter Merichos, a friend of theirs was, was um, and my memory's gone, I can't remember her name, she was a lovely woman, mm. the actress that played it. She used to come down to the music festivals. So Geoffrey was a, I mean, I knew him, I was a stagehand, he was an actor, that they had um, secured a, an agreement with Guinness that there was a pub scene in, in, the, in the play and they had Guinness Guinness have pulled out quite quickly when they realised how much Guinness was being drunk. <laughs> Let's say it was way beyond the requirements of the... <laughs> the other story I was going to tell you was I had been, I'm doing conservation work now, restoration work, it was before conservation days. One of my clients was a book, a rare book dealer in Savile Row. And I'd been there to see them and deliver some work or collect some work. And I came out exactly the moment that the Beatles started to play Hey Jude on the roof of the building, the Apple building, which was right next door mm-hmm. to Burton Rotors mm-hmm. in Savile Row. And I stood in Savile Row and listened to the whole bloody thing. It went on forever and it was wonderful. Mm-hmm. Police weren't going crazy because we were complaining. Traffic jams everywhere. Couldn't see them. I mean, right. you could see the odd... odd um, bit of a shoulder or something from them, because they, the, they were on the roof of the building, which was, I don't know, whatever it was, five, five stories, six stories, right? Um, but you could hear them. That was quite a magic little moment. Yeah. It was a very uh, iconic moment. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Because there was a film, they were filming it. There was a couple of other well-known musicians playing with them. But it's just a nice little thing from, from my mem- in my memory that there, there was coming out of a customer client's business and... There it happens. Mm. Yeah, it was good. I liked it. I remember that with great affection. Yeah, yeah I, I, I sort of heard Paul McCartney do a version of Hey Jude from about half a mile away at Glastonbury. It wasn't quite as magical. <laughs> <laughs> it was a little bit after. Yeah. <laughs> I think there are places not, not to revisit. I mean, you might remember, uh, my mother's just arrived, uh, but as a Beatles fan... Do you remember at all what, like, the Yellow Submarine, what the sort of reaction to that was, like, as this animated psychedelic film? I mean, I know critically it's it's a very well-received film, but, like, to just fans of the Beatles, do you remember how it went down? It was pretty amazing, I have to say, but it, we also, I think people my age, thought it was a little bit nuts. Right. We didn't really get it. Uh, in many ways, I think that it was just a little bit too out there, uh, a little bit too on acid almost. Yeah. Was, yeah, that's a good point. We were expecting a story, I think. Right. That's that a good had point. a beginning, a middle, and an that's end. A good point, yeah. 
and you didn't get that. No. What is it? Um, it links, sorry to interrupt, but it links back what I was saying earlier. It links back to the fact that there uh, is a decision as part of making the film that individual animated artists were given carte blanche to take songs. That's why you have these wildly different interpretations of certain songs. And you've got a you've got a theme running through the which is the yellow submarine, the blue meanies and all that. Um, a stylistic theme. And then you've got these songs like like Lucy in the Skies of Diamonds and so on and so forth, which are uh, an individual was given carte blanche to do them. So that that makes it more psychedelic. It, it mess in a way, wasn't it? There yeah. wasn't uh, Well no they mixed it, it was just that it, it suddenly you went into a completely different style, a different life, a different time, different everything. And then, boom, he went back to the story of the, and the, uh, the, the wonderful characters of the drawings and the, and the blue meanies taking over the world and stuff like that. And then you go into another completely different and, and far out uh, sequence. Mm. Or something. It was the kind of movie where when you came out and you went to go and have a drink and talk about it, Everybody had a different understanding yeah. about yeah. what on earth it was, what, what was going on. It, you know, it, it, this had to mean that. No, 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 it yeah. meant that. And, um, and that whole debate about, you know, is Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds about LSD yeah. at, or not? Was there and, ever any like ambiguity about that? Oh, there was. That, it, it was a little bit like at that time. There were all these rumors that the Beatles were were dead long before they were, and there was one record that apparently, so mm-hmm. the rumor went, if you put it the on the turntable and made it go backwards with your finger, it said, Paul is dead, Paul yes. is dead. And all of that was um, BS. It, you know. they were, well, they were sort of sprung from, they did record like backwards messages, yeah. but I don't think it was ever pulled One that had a huge significance was, was it Helter Skelter? No, that's Rolling Stones. No, is it? Okay. Helter Skelter. And it had a huge, huge significance in a period. Well, I mean, it feeds me. People were stupid then, almost as stupid as they are now. <laughs> almost. Almost, not quite. So that was my dad. And then at the end, my mum coming in <laughs> to throw in her two sets. Talking about the Yellow Submarine, now coming up to 50 years old. We also have... My dad. <laughs> yeah, we can have Brian. He's seen the film, and he'll tell you what he thought of it. It's all right. There you go. Thank you, Brian. What a delightful counterbalance. <laughs> uh, someone else who's also uh, done some pretty great work in the sort of world of... British animation, who worked on the, the Yellow Submarine, I believe, as one of her first gigs as an assistant animator, Gillian Lacey. She ended up setting up the Leeds Animation Workshop, and she taught for, I think, over a decade at the NFTS. She's done a whole bunch of stuff. One thing I think I saw at the Manchester Animation Festival, if I'm not mistaken, called Give Us a Smile. Yeah. Do you remember that one? It was Terry Rack who uh, came and presented. Right. A co- co-founder of Leeds Animation Workshop. So yeah, those films are quite good. I mean, Give Us a Smile is a pretty uh, prescient film, mm. especially in the sort of months that have elapsed since, you know, with this big uprising. It's about basically a woman having to deal with getting shit from men and not being taken seriously. And that was in the early 80s, and it's now coming up to 2020, and we're... <laughs> Not super advanced. Mm-hmm. It's a little better, I think, but uh, that there are discussions is still a discussion point. 
shows how glacially slow progress is yeah. on this front. So something of a bit of a, a pioneer in the sense of you know putting those concerns out in front of people. Some really interesting films. She also, I think, worked with, yeah, years later, I think she worked with Darren Walsh in a kind of beta version of the style he developed for Angry Kid. Mm. And um, the guy in the pub, was it Bob? Yes, yeah, yeah. Those films where he takes the pixelated replacement head masks on live action or, you know, full body actors, but films that like pixelation. She did a film about claustrophobia called Gotta Get Out with him. Yeah, also I think worked with Hallison Batchelor. Really sort of goes back a ways with those sort of early days of um, British animation cementing itself. So it makes a lot of sense that she would have been involved in a project as influential as The Yellow Submarine. Mm. And uh, very happy to say that we have a chat with her as well. So here's Gillian Lacey speaking with Squiggly Features writer Laura Beth Cowley about her experiences on Yellow Submarine. So can you tell us a little bit about your background prior to working on Yellow Submarine and what led you to working on the film as an assistant animator? I studied art at Caution. That was Bath Academy of Art. It was a Bauhaus-based course, and it was really exciting at the time compared with traditional art schools. Um, it was quite a different kind of course. And I got interested in film when I was there. Then I taught art in London. And, in London for a couple of years, but I really wanted to work in film. Animation was one of the bits of the industry that women could get a job in. Um, a lot of the others, you just couldn't. So that's what I did. I had some money from the BFI for a grant to make an animated film. I mean, I'd never done any animation. I don't know why they gave it to me. But anyway, they did. And I just made up the technique as I went along. And after that, I kept going around the studios asking for work. And George Dunning eventually employed me on Yellow Submarine. And I was a huge fan of his anyway, and also the designer, Heinz Edelman. So it's a great start to working, you know, to be, to be on something that wasn't cartoon and that was really imaginative. So, yeah, that was how that happened. Great. It would be great to hear about what the role entailed back in those days of film production. Can you elaborate on the production pipeline from your perspective? This is uh, it's so much easier to show somebody this, but um, as an ass assistant, I worked for four key animators. Okay. One of them was Paul Dreesen. So the key animators drew the main positions of a movement, and then in the bottom right-hand corner of the piece of paper, they did little diagrams which showed you where you should do the in-betweens. Oh, wow. So they'd label their drawings with a number, and then there might be a sort of mark to tell you to do another drawing halfway between those, or a third of the way between them. And then you might do more that were half of the half, so sometimes there'd just be one in between. Sometimes there were five or six. And so you were given a whole scene of those to do. And then when you'd done that, you took them back to the animator to check. And I have to say there, one of the animators I worked for, you sat on his knee while, you, while he checked them. Oh, wow, okay. <laughs> that 
wouldn't happen now, I don't think. Um, so the, the sequences are then line tested for, you know, to check the animation. But that meant they had to go off to the camera, to the rostrum camera, and be processed. So it would be a day or two before they came back and you could see what corrections had to be made. I mean, I find it so hard to believe that that's what actually happened. But it was. And because you couldn't immediately check the movement like you can now, it meant that you had to learn to feel movements, like from the inside, somehow. And I suppose you tried to feel them and you tried to make the movements yourself to understand what they were like. You know, you just had to wait then. And after... Um, they came back from being line tested. They were corrected mm-hmm. again, and then um, then they sent to a cleanup artist mm-hmm. who tried to make sure that all the animators had drawn the characters to match the model sheets. Right. So if you watch it, you can see it's obvious that different people have drawn characters in slightly different ways, and the walks are a bit different, and sometimes even the proportions are. A bit altered, but the clean-up artists had to try and make that all right. And then they were sent to paint and trace, and then it was all checked because sometimes um, drawings went missing or things were painted on the wrong side or even whole scenes sort of disappeared. And then it went to the rostrum camera for filming. So I was learning all about that because I'd never been involved in it before. Were there any uh, sequences that you remember really fondly or that you remember being incredibly challenging? The sequences I loved particularly were Eleanor Rigby, which Charlie Jenkins put together. Um, and the people in that were people, you know, who were, whose photographs were used in it, were people working on the production. And then Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds. I think they both look, I mean, I've looked at them in the last few days to see how they look now, because I haven't seen them for all that time, really. And I think they look quite old-fashioned. And I think Lucy's really messy. I mean, George Dunning's own work was a rather wonderfully designed freedom about it. But I think Lucy was done really quickly, and it's not like George's own free-painted animation. So I think... A person called Bill Sewell oversaw most of that. But I was really fond of both of those sequences. But in a, a, a challenging thing, in a way, for the people working on it, was that Heinz Edelman was an illustrator. And so he wasn't familiar with making things move. And at first, he used to design things, because a lot was designed as we went along. Um, and he used to put complex patterns onto characters you know, and spots and stripes, and they were really slow and complicated, almost impossible to animate. So he had to adapt, you know, and that was hard to try and do, and eventually he adapted his style to make it more simple. Wow, Uh, I mean, it was a nightmare, a real nightmare. The whole thing was educational and my drawing improved enormously just from having to draw so many hours a day and by the end of the year I could animate in a 
way that was acceptable professionally rather in my own sort of rather stilted way I'd been doing it before. And I'd learned about all the components of making an animated film. So it was a wonderful experience. It must have been an amazing like way of entering the industry. Like... I mean, it couldn't have been better, you know, to work on something that was so different. It was very much of its time, but it was so different from what was generally being produced. And I was never a cartoony sort of animator. So it was just wonderful. Your work since has used quite a lot of mixed media approach to your work. Did that come from working on Yellow Submarine? Um, not really. I mean, I've never thought about that until you mentioned it. I think it was there at the back of my mind because it introduced me, you know, full on to a lot of different techniques. But I only started working in that way myself much, much well, many years afterwards, and when computers were already being used. So I think it wasn't wholly significant in that, because before working on Yellow Submarine, I'd admired the work of several Polish animators who used mixed techniques, like Jan Lenitzer and Valerian Boracek, and also of the Canadian Norman McLaren. So I already you know, had those influences. Their work was much darker and, of course, I find really so vibrant and colourful, but I liked working on it because it was doing some of that stuff. Mm. Do you remember how the film was received by fans at the time? I have no memory of that at all. I mean, I thought the script was absolutely laughable. <laughs> And I had no interest in it whatsoever. And I really dislike the American producers. I mean, this is slightly off your question, but, you know, the American producers were just so typical of their time. They were loud and they came in with cigars in their hands. And I felt really sorry for George Dunning having to deal with them and being under such pressure with a very tight schedule. And so I was interested in the design and the film, but not the subject in a way, not the script. I've no doubt that if they just made a film like the Beatles TV series, it would have been nothing. But I think George and Heinz really accomplished something very original and groundbreaking. And I think that fans of the Beatles would not have particularly been... I mean, this is a guess, but because the real voices of the Beatles weren't used, I think it wouldn't have had much meaning for fans. Mm. I think it had more meaning for animators, yeah. for whom it were opened up a whole world of sort of non-cartoon possibilities. Mm -hmm. After you finished working on Yellow Submarine, did you manage to find work immediately? Yeah, I immediately got new work opportunities. Nearly everyone in animation at the time in London had worked on some bit of the film and you just couldn't help getting to know everyone. I found it quite hard going down to the pub everyone went to, the dog and duck, because I was ho hopeless at small talk and it was a time for dolly birds, etc. Um, so sexism was really rife, but luckily for the most part, I found people who weren't part of that scene 
And afterwards, I worked with um, Charlie Jenkins and Alison Tavere quite a lot. I worked at Alison Bachelor for a long while and on various other freelance opportunities with people who had either been on Yellow Submarine or knew people who had, but mostly they'd all been there for, for some, you know, for some of the time. So I worked as an assistant and then as an animator. And eventually, a few days later, I I moved north and started Lee's Animation Workshop, which was making educational and campaigning films. So it all kicked off from there, really, you know, because you just met so many people. And 50 years on, what are your overall feelings and impressions towards the Yellow Submarine now? It's very weird thinking about Yellow Submarine now because I barely recognise myself there. And if I look, I've only seen odd sequences over all that 50 years. And some of them are just so familiar because of the hours I laboured over them. And then others are just like strangers. Mm. I don't remember when I first saw the entire film and I haven't seen it since. And I find it very odd that I ran the animation MA at the National Film Television School for years, and I don't remember ever referring to it. Wow. And that really puzzles me now, because it's such an iconic piece of animation, but I never, ever referred to it. And I think, oh, I want to go back now and actually talk about it yeah. to students. I think the fact that the script was so excruciating put me off, you know. But, of course, this, because of doing this interview, it's made me start thinking about it again. And um, I haven't managed to miss that. I mean, I, obviously, I refer to millions of things, but not that. I'm interested to see it again now it's being re-released. I mean, I think it was the bits I've looked at are very much product of the 60s. Mm -hmm. I think probably quite a lot of drug-fueled input and pe people working on it. <laughs> I mean, a lot of dope around. And I think it just has a very important place in animated feature making. For sure. Um, Especially in England. Yes. I mean, sadly, there have been a lot of short films and other things that have really imitated it. Mm, yeah. But I think Heinz Edelman was very special designer. Yes, yeah. And um, very iconic. I think that's, I mean, that's what stayed with me. Obviously, the music's great and the animation's great. I also think animation is better as a short form. Yes. Yeah, I, I generally agree with that. <laughs> it's really pushing it to expect it to sustain over a 90-minute period. Was that an ethos that you had when you were at the NMTS as well? You know, I guess it was. I mean, I guess we were dealing with short film. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, I now think it was very remiss of me, but, but no, I can't explain that, really. <laughs> <laughs> Given what I'm saying about how important it is. That was Gillian Lacey on her experience working on The Yellow Submarine, released uh, originally the 17th of July, 1968, and that anniversary is coming up soon. Just before it, this Sunday, on July 8th, there are two simultaneous screenings of it 
one at Chapter in Cardiff, where we recently were at for the Cardiff Animation Festival, brilliant venue, and also at home in Manchester, another great venue where the Manchester Animation Festival is held. So I'm sure Squiggly listeners will be familiar with both of them. Whichever one's closer to you, you should check it out. That, again, this Sunday, 8th of July. And you can find out more specifics if you go to the Anim18 website, anim18.co.uk slash yellow submarine. Also, I believe on the 8th of July is a pre-anniversary screening at the BFI. And for information on that, go to whatson.bfi.org.uk. I'm not sure if that's organized separately or what but um it's the same day there just to tease people i do know that they're giving away gifts of sorts gifts eh oh my on the actual anniversary uh the 17th of july we'll be playing in birmingham at the mac or the mac i'm not sure how it's locally known and then later on in the year there'll be a few more screenings the only two that are sort of cemented with dates are the 25th of august in nottingham and the 2nd of September in Kendall. And these screenings are kind of more interactive. Apparently they're like sing-along screenings, which should be fun. Mm. So I think that there are definitely more of those planned, but I guess just keep your eyes on that anime18.co.uk website uh, for updates on that front. And we'll be putting them up on Squiggly as well. Because good animation events are no bad thing. Absolutely. Did I ever tell you when uh, Yellow Submarine was re-released uh, maybe about a decade ago? And I was watching it at the uh, Bradford Animation Festival. And right at the very beginning, there was these, this couple who was like a couple of rows behind me who were all kind of chatting to one another. And I was really doing my head in. And, and I was <laughs> I was literally going to stand up, turn around and go, just shut the, f- you know, shut up, try to watch the film. <laughs> and then a, and then a song came on and everyone started singing along. And I thought, if I'd have got up and actually said to them, could you please be quiet? <laughs> it would have sucked all the atmosphere out, out of the room. <laughs> so I'm glad I didn't. Everyone just in the audience all solemn. Like, yeah, yeah. Oh, look at all the lonely people. <laughs> <laughs> I want to go home. <laughs> the man <Yeah>. got angry. <laughs> A splendid time is guaranteed for nobody. Yeah. Uh, what I hope they don't give away at the, uh, at the London screening, the worst art of book that's ever been made. And it's weird because it was before art of books were a thing, but I have this thing I got off eBay once called The Art of the Yellow Submarine. Right. Which was officially licensed tie-in literature. And because art of books weren't established, there was no kind of bar, you know. The last thing this book of is The Art of the Yellow Submarine. And I was hoping for, like, you know, maybe some sketches or some maybe even some behind-the-scenes uh, production photos. I know they exist because I've seen them in like you know articles about the films at various you know milestone anniversaries that have come out. I'm sure people will see some the next couple of weeks or so. Uh, none of that stuff. Uh, just photographs of the day the Beatles came into the studio, oh. posing with cardboard cutouts of their animated selves. It's just like a photo book of that day. <laughs> I think maybe there are a couple of pictures of them in a, on the studio floor, but 90% of this book is just the f-ing Beatles and the cardboard cutouts, like, making faces. Oh. Like, that's not a book. That's not. I, I've got a Yellow Submarine book, which is a behind-the-scenes Yellow Submarine book, and it's self-published. Oh, yeah. uh, and it tells me to staple together by this guy. And I've never seen it anywhere else, but I saw it in this uh, comic shop. I think it was in the Comics Museum. Uh, and picked it up and thought, I'm going to have to have a look. I'm going to have to buy this. And it is just a guy who is involved in Yellow Submarine just laying into 
how the production worked and how it didn't work and how it just pitching about mm. <laughs> the, the, the the kind of production structure uh, of the film. Oh, that's great. And about how he still owed money and stuff like that. I, I, I seem to recall. Really good book. I'm going to have to dig it out and uh, I'll, I'll, I'll let you have a look at it the next time I see you. Yeah, I'd like to check that out. That sounds funny. Yeah. We should get that guy on. Yeah, get a miserable old git on to go. I'm still owed £50. Yeah. Uh, speaking of animation events, the uh, Manchester Animation Festival is looming. It is looming. Well, it's preparing to loom. Looming like a serial killer. It's, it's taking a run-up. <laughs> Uh, yeah, uh, we had a little bit of a uh, a little bit of a mixer the other day uh, when we revealed uh, that our industry excellence awards have had a redesign. So those that know what we do at Manchester Animation Festival, we have two tiers of award or two sets of award rather. We have our film competition. So if you've done a short film, a commissioned film, a student film, or a what we've called immersive film, so AR or VR, then you can submit it to the film award. But if you have done a commissioned film. You can also submit individual parts of that to the Industry Excellence Awards. So if you've done any writing, character design, character animation, or storyboards, or animatics, you can submit them to the Industry Excellence Awards, which have been given a uh, pretty beautiful, if I don't mind saying so myself, redesign by McKinnon and Saunders, uh, and sculpted by Beth Dupe. So uh, all details and some uh, pretty lovely tantalising images of the the award are on uh, manchesteranimationfestival.co.uk if you want to enter you've got until the 27th of July to enter for free and you can enter both competitions on the website which is manchesteranimationfestival.co.uk so a person can enter themselves yes and they can enter other people do they need to get any kind of clearance from the company or well no I, I don't think so because it's it depends. If you're working for somebody who's, let's say, super strict and you're working on it and they say you can't use it for your showreel, then no, I wouldn't submit it. But if you've got the right to show it for showreels, I would mm-hmm. say that gives you fair game to submit it to the festival, uh, given that the work uh, won't be broadcast uh, or anything like that. So mm-hmm. that's how we view it. And hopefully that's how other people view it as well. Now, could someone who runs a production nominate one of their crew yes and they can nominate as many people as they want as well that's good now what if i didn't work on the production (laughs) (laughs) these are the questions the people want to know yeah yeah. Uh, what if i didn't work on the production but i knew someone who was a great character animator on the show would i be able to nominate her yes or him yes in this hypothetical situation yes you can nominate her or him are they into the competition if you have the information and the examples to hand you know, it's always good to seek permission, I would say, but um, it's sometimes a nice uh, a nice little surprise. I mean, we've left it so people can actually submit themselves. So if you think, oh, I've done an absolutely blinding bit of character animation here, I'm going to submit it myself. Or if you're, say, uh, you work on the production, you're a, an animation supervisor and you've seen some fantastic animation that you want to submit, then yeah, submit that as well. Excellent. Well, yes, the award uh, redesign is, is quite splendid. So uh, kudos to Beth Jupe, who did a brilliant, brilliant job. I'm sure people will be very covetous of it. Hopefully. And uh, I don't think I've got any news this end. Bit of a quiet couple of weeks for me. We'll be back quite soon, I think, within the month, uh, so we won't have abandoned you for too long. 
And in the meantime, you can check out those Yellow Submarine anniversary screenings. Once again, the website is anim18.co.uk. And that's all I got. Follow us on Twitter at Squiggly. I'm at Ben L. Mitchell. Steve is at Mr. Underscore S Underscore Henderson. And we're on Instagram at Squiggly Animation. Facebook, Squiggly Magazine. And the website is squiggly.co.uk for all of our reviews and features and interviews, etc. Until next time, which will be in the near future, rest assured, uh, happy animating. Bye-bye.